especially early in training, you just, you see things and like, oh, this looks bad. And like, it's either good or bad. And there's just more of this dichotomizing to like, it's either going to be a good outcome or it's going to be a bad outcome. And if it's a bad outcome, like we, we shouldn't go and do all of this intensive stuff. Um, and I think the reality is so much more nuanced than that. Welcome back to the Neurophilia podcast. Whether you are listening to this episode on the way to work, at the gym, or even from the comfort of your own home, we want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to learn more about the wonderful field of neurology. In today's episode of the Neurophilia podcast, we have the absolute privilege of sitting down with the one and only Dr. Casey Albin to discuss the specialty of neurocritical care. Dr. Albin is an assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine, where she is a member of the Department of Neurocritical Care. Her research interests focus on educational innovations in acute neurologic emergencies and neurocritical care. She serves on the editorial boards of several journals and is passionate about open access neurologic education through Twitter, blogs, and podcasts. Dr. Albin, welcome to the Neurophilia podcast. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the subspecialty of neurocritical care. It is so great to be here, Amber. Thank you so much. This has been um, really exciting. And there are many things that I love about neurology, but neurocritical care is chief among them. So this is really um, cool to get to spend an hour talking about kind of my favorite things. We can't wait. And Sort of before we get into your work in neurocritical care, we like to ask all of our guest speakers to sort of talk us through their journey. When did you get interested in medicine and neurology and where did all it all start and how did you end up where you are now? Totally. So I, um, I really got interested uh, within medicine, probably at like, I don't know, high school biology class. Like I just thought it was really cool. I thought it was neat. And um we had an amazing teacher who at that point kind of saw that I was like interested in doing this and said, you know, there is this sort of summer scholars program at the Winship Cancer Institute, which is part of and affiliated with Emory. Um, and I said, well, that sounds neat. That sounds like something I would like to do. Um, and so I did this sort of, um, I guess it was like an eight week program and you were sort of you know, part of a group of high school students and you were invited into a lab of, you know, a prominent research faculty. Um, and I very quickly realized that I do not want to be a lab researcher. Like this is not my calling. Um, so I'm doing this like lab work and it's on oncology and, you know, you had to read a lot. Cause like, I didn't know anything. Like I like knew the term cancer, but like, I don't know anything beyond that. So it was a lot of reading and, I learned a lot, but the the thing that I really enjoyed was that my research mentor would have clinic twice a week. And so I would get to go to clinic twice a week. And I was like, this is more my jam. I loved that she was really engaged with the families and, you know, their whole cancer journey. And she was just really a passionate clinician scientist. And that sort of kicked off my journey of like, hey, I think I want to be patient facing. Um, so I was pre-med in college. Um, my major was actually history and I like love history and I like think a lot of it is what we still do as neurologists it's like uncovering you know clues and putting together a thesis um so a lot of that history training was actually really good for being a neurologist um I had no idea I wanted to be a neurologist until 
end of third year. It was very late in the application cycle. Like I was going into emergency medicine. I'm like sort of a fast paced person. I was going to, I like love emergencies and I was like gung ho about resuscitation and intubations and like this was going to be my jam. Right. And then I was doing my sub I. So I'm an emergency medicine sub I. And there were all of these really cool neurology cases that we kept seeing. So there was a person with like what we thought was leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. There was another person who came in having a stroke. There was another person who came in in status. And the neuroresuscitation was just amazing. And then there was a patient who came in with a clogged Foley. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I want to be the doctor that deals with clogged Foley's. Fast forward, here I am in neurocritical care where I deal with clogged foleys and like, like, you know, other sort of disgusting occurrences on a regular basis. So funny that that happened. But the more I kept thinking about it, the more I was like, I really am drawn to the neuroemergencies more than anything else. So very late in the game, like I think like letters of recommendation are coming up on due. Like I need to put together an application. I decide um, that I'm going to do a rotation in neurocritical care. And I just, I loved it. Like, it was like one of those, like, this is my calling. Like, this is emergencies. Um, It is all neuroemergencies. I get to see what happens longitudinally, not, you know, in the long, long term longitudinally, but at least, you know, we get to figure out whether or not it really is leptomeningeal carcinomatosis or whatever the mystery was in the ED that you didn't really get the follow up on. Then you got to see it. And one of the things that I really wanted, which was sort of a wide breadth of pathology. Um, And so I think that's one of the things that I really love most about neurocritical care. Um, But yeah, so this was like very late in the game. So then I have to do a neurology sub-I and I I probably like skated in like right at the due date, like of neurology residency. Um, And it's funny because um, when I was applying, I, I ended up, um, matching at MG, what is, I guess it's MGB now. I always wanted to do neurocritical care. Like that was very clearly, like I've never deviated from wanting to do emergencies. Um, and then I, um, was planning to go straight from residency to fellowship. I was in the, the match for like fellowship and we were going to go to Emory and like all that was really well and good. And then like maybe two weeks before like the end deadline for a fellowship application, my husband who was not in medicine was like, it's really important that I stay in Boston another year. Well, uh, what am I supposed to do? Like, how's this going to work? I sort of spent like that two weeks very frantically trying to figure out if I could do locums for a year. Um, Stroke fellowship deadline had like basically passed, but I was hopeful that maybe I could like scramble into a spot somewhere. You know, I actually really didn't have a plan by the time that the neurology, um, the, the neurology fellowship training came and went. Through a variety of things, I ended up putting together a sort of this medical simulation fellowship that was through the emergency department of medicine, um, which allowed me to sort of stay in the fellowship cycle. So I didn't actually graduate because I was a medical simulation fellow. And then since I was like a, still a trainee, I, I ended up being able to spend about 15 weeks as a neuro ICU fellow. Um which allowed me to do like clinical hands-on stuff. And that year ended up actually being sort of the most high value 
year that I could have taken. Cause I think, um, it was really a silver lining of what was sort of just a sort of needed for a family situation. Eventually moved down to Emory, finished up my, my two year ICU fellowship there and then stayed on as faculty. So that's a, that was a long story, but yeah, that's, that's how I ended up here. What, what a wonderful story, Dr. Alvin. And there's so many, there's so many pearls in what you shared. I think firstly, it's really, really impressive sort of the tempo at which you came to neurology. Cause oftentimes I feel like for applicants, you know, you have that pressure that you have to know exactly what you want to do with your life the minute you get to third year of medical school. And so to hear that you sort of went through this path of being in love with emergency medicine and coming to neurology a little bit later on, I think it's really reassuring for applicants to hear that it's okay if your your journey to neurology is not exactly linear or quick, you'll get to where you're meant to be. Um, and so to sort of switch gears, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the field of neurocritical care. What does the training look like after neurology residency to become a neurointensivist? It's a great question. And I think there's actually a lot of variability. Um, just recently, neurocritical care became an ACGME accredited subspecialty. Um, so that has been really new. And I think that is really going to standardize what training looks like. Um, when I was doing fellowship, um, we were under UCNS, which, you know, accredits the fellowship, but was pretty lenient on like what actually constituted a neuro ICU fellowship. And so there was a lot of variety in terms of like what you could do as a neuro ICU fellow. Um, some fellowships were incredibly sort of neurocentric. Like you spend a lot of time in the neuro ICU. Um, you are thinking about research for neural critical care people. Um, and you are sort of refining sort of how care is done for patients with stroke, uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, epilep um, status epilepticus, and neuromuscular emergencies. And then there's the sort of the flip side where you actually – a fellowship where they say, mm, you've already been a neurologist, like really you're here to learn critical care medicine and you can spend a lot of time being a general critical care medicine. So one of the programs that really has um, championed that I think is the um, UPMC model of critical care training, where the fellows are just part of a general critical care fellowship pool and they spend time, you know, um, just doing what all the other general critical care fellows do. Um, Emory was a little bit of a blend of both, which was one of the reasons that I thought it was such a phenomenal training program. Um, and I think more and more, this is really what most fellowships are starting to look like, where there is a blend of how much ICU exposure you get in sort of a general surgical ICU, medical ICU, um, you know, CT surgery. Like we do a lot of consults for ECMO patients and like you actually kind of have to know a little bit about how like the echo, ECMO circuitry works. Um, and doing, you know, sort of transplant um, ICU so that you understand like when we're, when we're evaluating patients with hepatic encephalopathy who are transplant candidates, what is their transplant journey going to look like? And, you know, a lot of those liver failure patients have a lot of coagulopathies. They have subdurals. They have, um, they stay in the hospital a really long time and they get endocarditis and then their endocarditis is in the brain. And so, um, we spent time sort of in the transplant ICU and you take care of those patients as a transplant critical care fellow. That is sort of the first year at Emory. So you do, you do like one, uh, two, three months of neuro ICU care, 
But then the rest of that first year was really spent in immersed in like other ICU training environments. And so it was really a broad exposure to critical care medicine. And it was the most intensive learning atmosphere since I had been an intern. You don't cardiovert a whole lot of patients during your neurology residency, or you're not managing four pressures pressor shock or like methylene blue. And these are all the things that as a uh, neuro ICU fellow, like you kind of have to know. Um, So it was great fun, but it was also, you know, a lot of learning. So I think every fellowship looks a little different in terms of like how much critical care you're doing and how much neurology, specifically neurocritical care you're doing. Um, But all of them, I think, give their fellows a chance to sort of understand how do you manage an airway? How do you manage the ventilator? How do you manage circulation support when people need pressors? How do you manage bronchoscopy? Um, And sort of those common sort of procedures that happen within critical care. So there's a lot of variability. I think in the next couple of years, it will be better standardized in um, the ACGME realm. Yeah, Casey, I was curious. I mean, it's just nice to listen. And, you know, I was thinking even before this podcast started, about how uh, the way that I view neurocritical care attendings or the neurocritical care in general is almost like a a gatekeeper to uh, someone's critical illness from a neuro standpoint, but also that you probably have the most interaction with other specialties. And I was thinking of our whole first season of all the different specialties of medicine and surgery and people that we interviewed. And I'm like, who who better to talk about the interaction between different specialties of medicine and surgery than somebody in neurocritical care. So I I thank you for going through all that and just highlighting uh, as a neurointensivist, just how much variability that there can be and how much variety. Um, I'm curious about two points, uh, one fellowship related and one more critical care related. From a fellowship standpoint, it seems like a lot of people have this um, idea of, do I wanna do a stroke fellowship? Do I wanna do critical care? Do I wanna do both? Um, it seems like a very uh, big branch point for us who love neuroemergencies, if you will. Do you have any advice or tips or t- tricks about people trying to figure out critical care versus stroke versus do I really need both of them? And then my second question is, you mentioned a lot of different things that you take care of in the ICU day in and day out. Do you have a favorite and a least favorite uh, bucket of patients that you care for? So I think many people who want to do neurocritical care also think about stroke. There is so much vascular neurology and neurocritical care. Um, I think the the main difference is is within the neurocritical realm, we we take care of acute stroke, but often are not the ones making TPA and thrombectomy decisions, right? And that's really exciting. Like actually, I love that, but I don't do that on a day in and day out. I would say that the the thing that I miss out on as a neurointensivist is I'm often not the first person making a decision about they're going to go to LVO therapy or they're going to get TPA or no TPA, right? I inherit a lot of those patients. A lot of those patients um, do really well, and then they go out of the ICU, and I that's you know I babysit them for a day, and they go on with living their lives. A small minority of them then end up having more complications. And they need, you know, decompressive hemicraniectomy. They need hyperosmolar therapy. They have a hemorrhagic conversion from their TPA. And then we have to kind of reverse them. Um, They have a reperfusion injury from their LVO. And, you know, we have to kind of go down that, you know, diagnostic and therapeutic management. So a lot of the acute stroke 
excitement does get taken care of in the, the neuro ICU, but not that initial management decision. And so if, if the initial management decision is really kind of your, what really makes you excited about neurology, I feel like stroke fellowship is a better fit. The stroke neurologists also get to have, or get to have more longitudinal care. And so that's something that I, as a neurointensivist, miss out on. Like, I don't see anyone in clinic, which is a nice thing when my weeks are off, they're really off. Um, but I think there is something that I miss about kind of seeing how patients do long-term. Um, and there's a lot of vascular disease that keeps happening long-term. And the, I think that that management evolves over time. And so I think those are some of the things to think through when thinking through, um, do I want to be a neurointensivist? Um knowing that I'm taking care of patients in neurologic emergencies and really no other time in their, their course, or do I want to help make some of those neurologic emergency decisions with, you know, acute stroke therapy, but then also get to see patients long-term and help them kind of manage people in the clinic and think about stroke risk factor modification. And I think a lot of um, what vascular neurologists are doing is applying trials, right? And there's so many trials in stroke neurology um, and so I think, especially if you're interested in stroke research, like being a vascular trained neurologist makes sense. The final aspect of uh, part one of that question is, do you need both? And I think a lot of that depends on kind of what your goal is. Um, I think some of our fellows recently have wanted to be like directors of a neuro ICU in a comprehensive stroke center and felt like having stroke certification was sort of important to sort of their credentials to be like a leader of an ICU and a comprehensive stroke place. Um, a lot of our fellows think about um, doing either stroke or neurocritical care as a bridge or as a pathway to neuroendovascular training. Um, that is becoming more and more common. There are definitely benefits to both. Like I think you have a heightened appreciation for the longitudinal management of care if you're doing a vascular neurology fellowship, but you'll have a greater appreciation for hemorrhagic stroke, especially subarachnoid hemorrhage and a little bit of AVM and sort of the vascular neurology um, hemorrhagic side that neurointensivists take care of that vascular neurologists don't have as much of an interface with. There's a benefit of doing either. I don't know that there's like a whole lot of indication these days to do both, but it depends on what you're trying to do. All right. So that was part one. The subarachnoid hemorrhage patient population is by far my favorite. I think any neurointensivist will tell you that the subarachnoid hemorrhage um, patients are the just the most challenging. Um, they are the most exciting. The anatomy of that is going to be interesting. That like surgical um, management is com uh, complex, but also um, really elegant and beautiful. And they do, not all of them, but there is really a potential for recovery. And I think that that's really, really rewarding. Um, anyone who is as sick as that ends up having a bunch of critical care medicine complications. Like they have you know, ARDS, or they have Takasubo cardiomyopathy, and we have to make complicated management decisions about their milrinone and their presser status and their TCDs. And, and it's a, using a lot of multimodal monitoring. Um, and you can just tell I'm like very excited, just like thinking about this. It's like really a really interesting patient population. Um, on the flip side, I really don't like caring for status epilepticus anymore. I'm over it. 
I'm just, I'm not, I'm not loving it anymore. <laughs> that said, every now and then there is like an interesting autoimmune encephalitis or, you know, something that is a more exciting status epilepticus. But I feel like when, it, when there's a status patient admitted, it's mostly like, let's try to get them extubated and move on their way. True stories from the neuro ICU <laughs> from Dr. Alvin. So um, I'm curious, uh, a lot of my patients that I see in follow-up in, in vascular neurology, they come back and if they have a complicated course in the ICU, almost always, even though I get to follow them longitudinally in clinic, they always want to go back to the ICU. They always want to see people in the ICU. Um, I think it's uh, spot on the fact that even though you don't get that long-term follow-up to see how they're doing, a lot of my patients like to go back to the ICU and um, chat with the people that took care of them in the ICU. So I'm sure that you get a lot of that. Yeah, I think during the pandemic, we didn't get that. And it was really sad because people couldn't come back and see us. And so you just were sort of stuck wondering, like, or wondering, like, what happened to those people? Post-pandemic, we are starting to see some people come back who you won't even recognize. Like, People look so not like themselves in the throes of a critical care illness when they're hooked up to machines and, um, you know, they have EEG goop in their hair and it's just, you know, it's, it's rough. Like critical care is really hard on people. Um, so to see people come back as their normal selves and like see the recovery, um, absolutely phenomenal. All right, Newber, I only have two more questions off the top of my mind. So one of them, Casey, is um, would you mind, a lot of our listeners may have some experience with the critical care unit, some may not. Um, the concept of closed ICUs versus open ICUs, um, and maybe just share a couple of benefits and, and maybe cons about each one. So I think I've always worked in closed ICUs. And by that, I mean that um, all of the patients in the ICU who are being taken care of are neuro patients um, and they are either neuro neuromedicine patients or neurosurgical patients. And they are assigned a primary attending who is either the neurointensivist or the neurosurgeon, but the neurointensivist is, is like just as much as part of the care if they're primary neuro, neurosurgery patients. Um, and the nurses who take care of them are all neuro nurses. And we're all in this environment of this is a neuro ICU where all the patients here for the most part, are being cared for by a neurocentric team. That contrasts to an open ICU, which is, you know, there are a bunch of different kind of definitions of what a neuro, an open ICU is. But basically, these are neuro patients who might have a primary team of anesthesia, right? It, like the anesthesiologists are the ones managing the critical care illness, and neurology is a consultant for the stroke management that brought them to needing intubation, but the primary team is a anesthesia team and neurology is consulting on these patients. And these patients are often in a mixed medical surgical ICU. Um, they may be in a uh, like a trauma ICU, depending on how kind of your hospital works. I think the benefit of that is that um, you do get sort of expertise in critical care medicine. So it may be, you know, anesthesia puts in more endotracheal tubes every year than I do. So if you have a complicated airway, the person who is best equipped to manage that complicated airway is the one who's going to be dealing with it. Uh, medicine folks are also, you know, dealing with ventilators like on a day-to-day -day basis. And some of their patients have really complicated ventilator needs. And so should our, you know, stroke patient develop ARDS, like that's their bread and butter, which for me, you know, uh, not on a regular basis, right? So I think 
a little bit is that you get some of the best in terms of critical care care. Um, and then you get a neurology consult. The drawback to that is I don't know that everyone always sees the whole picture, right? And so I think one of the beauty and what we've seen and like the evidence shows is that having a neurointensive care team that's thinking about the big, big picture is probably better and actually improves mortality for these patients. And so I think that that's why it's ideal if you can be in a closed ICU where you're getting sort of really um, dedicated neurocritical care. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for uh, simplifying it for a lot of people out there who might not know the difference and work in different environments. And obviously, academic centers may they look very different than a regional hospital that people might rotate through or work at at some point. So I think it's really helpful to, to kind of break that down. And then uh, my final question, at least for right now, is, um, you know, we hear a lot, especially through the pandemic and even after and in general about shift workers and critical care hours and how do you keep up with it? How do you prevent burnout? So maybe instead of uh, talking about all the drawbacks or about these things. Can you tell us how you combat some of the things that we hear about shift work? So I will say we have phenomenal teams. Um, and so, you know, I think it makes it a lot. I sleep better at night knowing that my intent, like my APPs that are there overnight are just phenomenal. Like, and they will call me and they will know when to call me. Um, I think one of the most important things is establishing a culture that keeps people long-term. Many of our night APPs have been around more than five years, many more than 10. And I think that that speaks to the culture of, you know, we really care about them. We want to, um, you know, give them opportunities for growth in their own career. That really, like more than anything else, I think combats sort of the, the fear of like, or the need to feel on all the time. The other thing that I think helps um, is carving out a little bit of time. Like I try, even when I'm on service, to take 30 minutes of this, you know, Peloton. I like love Peloton. It's like my Peloton ride. And then I'm going to be in a better headspace for the whole day. Um, so making a little bit of time. Um, and then this is like one of those like basic things, but eating well, I think one of the things that like gets compromised when you're on like longer shifts is that you just sort of like, oh, I'll have some M&Ms now. And then I'm going to have this like, oh, someone brought cake in the break room. And like, I have certainly been guilty of just eating sugar all day long. And by the end of that day, I just feel terrible. Um, so I actually try to like meal prep for the week so that like, I'm actually eating meals during the day and um, they're not like junk food. And I find that when I actually take the time to do that, my week is a lot better because I'm like nourished and I actually take, you know, it doesn't have to be a long time, but like take 20 minutes to sit down, eat a nutritious meal, and then go talk to families. And I'm going to be a much happier person than if I'm just, I shoved a handful of M&Ms between rounds. So, uh, you know, just life skills. Um, I think the thing that most causes burnout is moral injury in the neuro ICU, um, more than shift work, more than like the fatigue of being on because you're on for a week and that week is really intensive, but you have a week off. So, you know, I don't know. I feel like you have time to recover. The thing that I have found the hardest is that there is what feels like a lot of feudal care that is done in ICUs. And I think part of that is just learning that even though critical care is my job day in and day out and 
you know, we're not perfect at neuroprognosticating, but we're, we have a fairly good sense of like, who's going to do very poorly. A lot of that has to do with like your admission frailty. Like critical care illness is so hard on the body and like people become deconditioned within days. And so we can tell when sort of our older, frailer patients are admitted that, you know, it might not go as well because they just don't have the reserve to bounce back from a neuro perspective or from a critical care perspective. Um, so what I've had to, you know, continue to meditate on is that even though I know that families may not have accepted that yet, and it just takes more time. Um, and some of that frustration, I think, can be alleviated by just remembering that this is really hard for families and that, you know, if they need some time with a, their loved one who gets a trach in a peg and then they see that, you know, it's been a month and they're still not recovering, you know, maybe I didn't need that month for them to, to know that this was not going to go well, but the family did. And so um, I think sometimes the, the frustration or the burnout of neurocritical care comes from feeling like, gosh, we're doing all this stuff and it's not going to make a difference. Um, and I think you have to kind of pull back and say like, but it made a difference to the family. It gave the family peace. Um, and so I've tried to like embrace that even as long as we aren't harming patients. Like, I think that's the hardest part of critical care medicine. Casey, just before we started recording, I was uh, telling you that even for myself and experiencing neurology day in and day out, uh, I always, from every single episode that we do, there's usually a moment or several moments to where I just kind of like listen and I say, wow, like that's what I want to take away personally from this episode. And that's what really hits home for me. And everything that you just said, I was just like, check, check, check. I'm like making mental notes of like, yes, yes, yes. Like maybe I won't eat so fast when I go out with my friends and family. If I take two seconds and sit down, you know, this resident strategy of like, I always tell the residents, if you see free food, grab it and go and eat while you're running to the next thing that you have to do. But it's created some bad habits outside of work for me. So life tips, but then also everything that you just said, it reminds me a lot of our neuroethics and palliative medicine kind of episodes too that we did. And it just, um, it's very insightful. And I always try to remember that quality of life means something different to every single person. And even though we see things that we don't equate to quality of life, all the things that you just said are just so important to keep in mind. And uh, it all comes back to everything that you said comes back to being very patient centered, um, the team approach, the patient centered approach to what they need in, in that situation. So thank you for those words. It meant a lot. And um, I love listening to everything that you just said. I think there's some weeks where I'm like, I did great on exercising and eating well and being patient with families. And, you know, there's some weeks where it's still a work in progress. <laughs> Dr. Alvin, I just was wondering, you know, if you had any tips or tricks for current neurology residents in terms of how to think about neurological emergencies and how to think about um, sort of sharing neuroprognoses with family members as well as patients. Yeah, I think neuroprognostication is still the hardest thing that we do, right? Because it's constantly humbling you. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at scans and been like, oh, this is terrible. And like, you know, the family wanted to keep going. And then like a month later, I walk back in and I haven't been on service in a while. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that patient's awake. And like, you know, they've, they are recovering and they might not be perfect and they may have a trach and they may still be weaning from the vent, but like 
they're following commands and they're waving at their family member. And they clearly said that that was the standard that they wanted to achieve and they did it. Um, it is totally humbling all the time. I think the biggest tip that I will give pay, um, to the listeners and one of the tips I wish I had even gotten earlier in residency is that the large strokes who are young do can do really well with decompressive hemicraniectomy. Um, that is That is just one of the like, strategies that like, I wish I had learned earlier. Cause when I was talking to families about that, I, I would say things like, you know, this will prevent them from dying, but may not give them a good outcome. And I think that is a little bit misleading because yes, it will absolutely prevent, it will prevent them from dying more so than not having a decompressive hemicraniectomy, but it also gives them the best chance at a, a better neurologic recovery. And it may not be perfect. They may not hit, you know, an MRS of zero to one, but that's the best chance we get for an MRS of three or less. And so um, I try to be like, not overly optimistic, but I think sometimes, especially early in training, you just, you see things and like, oh, this looks bad. And like, it's either good or bad. And there's just more of this dichotomizing to like, it's either going to be a good outcome or it's going to be a bad outcome. And if it's a bad outcome, like, we, we shouldn't go and do all of this intensive stuff. Um, and I think the reality is so much more nuanced than that. And then, you know, there is this, um, that this disability paradox where some of our disabled patients um, actually still find incredible meaning in their quality of life. And so I think what people accept as their reality is very different once they're faced with sort of a life or death emergency. When you know that the the other outcome was death, it, it's actually surprising like how much disability patients can live with and still feel like they have meaningful quality. Um, and so again, I am constantly humbled by that. I also do try to be really realistic with families about the time course, right? That yes, we might see them achieve something of a sort of what they would consider a meaningful quality of life, but we need to consider how long it's going to take for that meaningful recovery to occur. And critical care medicine is really rough on people. And I think some people will say, you know, even if my loved one could achieve this, this level of a good or this level of an outcome, if that means that they would live in a long-term acute care hospital, that would not be consistent with their quality of life. And so I think some of it is just being realistic about what we will achieve and realizing that people can can learn to live at a, a more disabled state than what we would accept as good quality. Um, that actually, that is very meaningful for a lot of patients, but also keeping in mind like how long that timeline for recovery is and knowing that not everyone wants to endure that level of disability to get to the the level that they might achieve. And so that's so family specific, but I, I do think of it as two axes of like, how good do we think it's possible that you would get and how long is it going to take? I find that framing it for those, with those two sort of axes sort of helps families come to terms with that neurology does not have quick, you know, you had sepsis and you got better a week later. It's like you had this event happen and the next couple months, maybe a full year might be what we need to really help you achieve your, like your, you know, your end state. So I think that's hard, but those are the things that I kind of keep in mind. You see, I think about this all the time and, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes of, 
you know, we quote the ICH score and we quote 90 day modified Rankin. And one, it, it, that's a, a measure of functional independence, but you know, what are we missing? You know, what type of quality of life are we missing? And I think a lot of these patients that you just mentioned, they just need more time. So I'm always curious in the longer term outcomes. And are we, are we painting too much of a doom and gloom picture for some of our patients based off of the, some of the numbers that are out there and really some of these patients that you just highlighted uh, maybe they need more time. So this is something that I uh, I think about all the time. Totally. I feel like the more, the more we see, the more that we give people longitudinal outcomes, uh, the more that we're like, gosh, like the brain does recover. It just takes a long time. Dr. Alvin, before we sort of switch over to talk about your other passion of medical education, I'm wondering if you could give the listeners a glimpse into what is up and coming in the field of neurocritical care that you're very excited about. You know, I think that hopefully over the course of my, you know, career, we're going to see that we are better at neuroprognostication, right? I think that's really the gold standard of what it means to be a neurointensivist is to, be, uh, to best understand in patients with severe acute brain injury, who's likely to get better and how do we support those patients and who is likely to never get better and how, how do we counsel those families appropriately? Um, I think some of this is going to need more multimodal monitoring that is being led by ICUs across the country. Um, you know, the more data we have the and the more that we can adequately incorporate that data, right? I think sometimes in the neuro ICU, we have an abundance of data and we really don't know what to do with it. And so it just ends up being a lot of noise and not a lot of signal. So the more that we refine that signal and we're able to say like, here's how EEG helps us. Here is how um, uh, depth of electrodes can help us. Here is how we can use this Lycox monitor to get more data. Here's how we can use cerebral microdialysis so that we're getting data that it's not just uh, a lot of noise. And I think AI is going to, to be a huge part of that. Like, right, we, we need, you cannot shift through all of the stuff that we get day in and day out, right? If we're going to have all of this data, we need algorithms that are smarter than humans. And those are going to be computers and sort of artificial intelligence. So I do think that that's really the future of neurocritical care is better neuroprognostication using like high technology to, to help us sort out what are the things that we most need to focus on. That that is brilliant, and I'm I'm getting excited hearing you talk about that as as a as a future that will be so helpful not only for our patients but I think also for neurologists in general to have those those tools in their toolkit to rely on going forward when it comes to such a difficult part of providing neurocritical care. Um, so thank you so much for all of this information and to sort of switch gears. Um, the second thing that we really wanted to talk to you about today is, is the work that you, you do in medical education, specifically in the realm of digital scholarship. And uh, you do so much amazing work with AAN, with all of the blogs that you're involved with. And I wanted to bring up this blog post that you wrote about, and it was titled, Social Media as a Career Catalyst, How Do We Measure Impact? You wrote... Social media has facilitated access to a larger pool of like-minded in interests and enables the rapid building of a social network. In many ways, social media has democratized who can be in the room, allowing anyone, regardless of location, status, or rank, to participate in hashtag NeuroTwitter discourse. 
So the questions that I wanted to ask you, first, if you could explain what NeuroTwitter is to our audience, for those who are unfamiliar. And then secondly, can you talk a little bit about how digital scholarship has influenced the way that you view medical education? Casey, can we still say Twitter? I was going to say, like, I don't know if it's our Twitter anymore. Like, have, really, have you fully I, embraced? I don't know. I don't understand. I like, ugh. I um. So I, I am, I am such a believer in social media for, uh, for like the democratization of medical education. I am so like not loving how Elon Musk has has managed Twitter. I'm like so disappointed. Um, Nerd Twitter was a community on Twitter um, where, you know, you could kind of by using the hashtag, you could find people who were tweeting about Nerd Twitter and then you would kind of like see what they who they followed and you would find other people who were posting about. I follow both sort of neurologists and critical care. Critical care was huge on Twitter. Like I learned so much about like critical care trials during COVID. Um, I've learned a lot of great airway stuff. Like the the critical care community is extre- was extremely active in social media. And then neurology kind of came along sort of secondary and was like, hey, we can also post educational posts and we can also do teaching threads and we can also post research. And that was like really building towards the end of 2022, I guess. Um, which was, I feel like the heyday of neuro Twitter when it was like, you know, it was actually the algorithm made it very easy to find other like-minded individuals. And you would just find these great posts and it was teaching and it was papers and people were thinking about papers. And, um, it really became a community that I like loved. And I like met so many people that I now collaborate with through this incredible platform. Um, and unfortunately some of that has been sort of I think that everyone's sort of enthusiasm for Twitter has uh, diminished in the Elon Musk era. And unfortunately, uh, since Twi- since it's a community, it really takes community involvement, right? And so part of what made Twitter great was that it was it felt like it was growing and that there were more people who were like getting involved in the conversation. And, you know, maybe that will come back. I think it will. The, the other thing that I will mention is I do think that um, – Clinicians in uh, lower middle income countries continue to use Twitter as a space where they get a lot of medical education. Um, we are so fortunate in these sort of, um, you know, U.S. academic medical centers where we have free access to PubMed through your library subscription. And that is not true globally. And so I think one of the things that actually really keeps me on Twitter is the that the continuum cases that we post, those are those are followed globally. And so that to me is actually one of the reasons that I stay on Twitter is that I think that there is still value, especially in, in um, reaching clinicians who are not in the States. Um, so I think NeuroTwitter was a great was a great thing. I hope that somehow there will be another sort of platform that allows for the sharing of um, cases and of teaching and of the latest in research or in like kind of like reinvestigating old research papers. I think that was one of my favorite things about NeuroTwitter is that people would like say like, this is one of my favorite papers. It was published in 2005. And here's like how it applies to my like practice day in and day out. Or I've been thinking about some of the things that we do and why we do them that way. And, you know, what was the evidence for why we decided to do hypothermia in the first place? So some of that historical sort of like core reasons for why we did things was one of my favorite things about NeuroTwitter. 
Well, I think that speaks to sort of your major in, in undergrad, Dr. Alvin. You you love history and sort of understanding um, where things come from seems to be a, a continual interest of yours. So it's going to be interesting sort of where we go from here when it comes to digital scholarship. Um, but I, I just want to say you've done such a wonderful job of making accessibility to neurology education so achievable for everyone, whether it is doctors in low-income countries, whether it is medical students here in the U.S., um, truly such wonderful work. And sort of the last question that I have regarding it is if you could talk a little bit about the pros and cons when it comes to digital scholarship that you have sort of experienced and and found in your time. I would say the, the con is that I don't know that like promotion and tenure like um, committees really understand what digital education and digital scholarship is. Um, I think one of those, it's one of those things where I was like, mm, I'm just not going to care about that. I'm going to keep doing this because this sort of brought me joy. Um, but, you know, as I get further in my attending career, I'm like, oh, like I spent a lot of my time doing things that like PNT committees are not really going to appreciate. So that's on the, like the con side. Like, I'm not sure that like, my list of tutorials is going to earn me promotion. So on the flip side of that, though, I will say that Twitter um, and the, like the neuro Twitter community has allowed me to get so involved in a variety of just different, um, you know, initiatives or sort of medical education research collaborations or just network with other clinician educators. And then it's like through Twitter, got involved in AAN and NCS. And so there are some real things that like came out of that, that will be acknowledged by the, the, the people that be uh, in sort of the realm of academia where they will recognize like, oh, you, you are serving as the associate editor of Continuum. We know what that, we know what that means. So, like from a practical standpoint of what it means to be an academic neurologist, um, you know, sometimes well, the digital education is not really well understood in the like traditional sense of what it means to be an academic physician. And then the flip side of that is that there is such a community that I think it did allow me to get involved in things that A, are really exciting and fun to be a part of, and B, that the establishment recognizes. The other thing that I will say about it is that it is a way more informal way to talk Right. So like when I even write that blog post, I'm like, oh, neuroeducational discourse, like who are we? Um, which, you know, on Twitter, like when I write things, it's like using like GIFs and like funny emojis and like, I don't know, I, I kind of am a sort of an informal person. And so it is more fun for me to write teaching things that have like a little funny like memes and emojis and also link to PubMed papers than, you know, sort of using like high academic language. Uh, so I, I think we all kind of enjoy reading things that are enjoyable to read and they're way more enjoyable to write. So I think that's another sort of benefit of digital education is that it it actually has a more informal tone. Casey, as a consolation prize, I can tell you one, I always told everybody that I was holding out and I would have all social media except I would never get on Twitter. Um, I failed miserably at that. Um, but you, I think for a lot of us, make it digestible. You make it fun. 
you make it educational. Um, and, uh, you know, I listened to a, a few of the talks that you gave at the AAM this past year. And um, one of them is you talked about how you use education and, you know, Twitter tutorials uh, on rounds. And I was on acute stroke last week and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Um, I don't know how well it went over, um, but, you know, we were we went to see a patient uh, that we got called for post-op potentially stroke with a foot drop. And I said, I don't think that this is, you know, from from the brain, I don't think it's central. I think that this is a peripheral nerve injury. And me as a vascular neurologist, I'm like, wait a minute, why don't we find a good tutorial on foot drop and go through our lumbar plexus? And it was so much more enjoyable than everybody having to listen to me try to struggle through my L5 uh, route <laughs> down to the oh, perineal nerve and the tibial nerve. So, so, you know, I think there's a lot of us that have benefited from what you've done. And even though it probably doesn't show up on, uh, you know, through your PNC committee, uh, we appreciate it. And you've obviously influenced a lot of us in a lot of different levels. So thank you for that. Oh, totally. Casey, um, before we do no brainers, okay. um, one minute elevator pitch for why neurocritical care is the best subspecialty of neurology. Okay. One minute. Um, you get to take care of an amazing breadth of neuro, like neuropathology, right? And like very few other subspecialties do you take care of vascular neurology, of epilepsy complications, of um, neuromuscular emergencies, of um, of critic of medicine. So, like, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the interface of medicine and the brain. So, whether that's hematologic uh, um, problems that manifest in the brain, like I don't know, like TTP. Or if it's the manifestation of hypoxemia in a patient who has ARDS or Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy in someone who has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I think there's very few aspects of neurology in which you get to think about such a broad, um, eclectic mix of pathologies. And so it's like being a general neurologist and an, inten an intensivist and a critical care medicine physician. And like, I love that variety. Um, it's also great for people who have like a short attention span, um, because, you know, I, I like, I really need like constant stimuli to stay on fast with things. And so there's always so much going on that like the days just fly by. And so I think that, that high energy. And then the final thing I will say is that it's taking care of patients as a group, right? I'm never just the physician in the office. I round with like a sometimes a very large team, like sometimes too large of a team, but every patient is being taken care of by a team. And that to me is like really fun and makes the day go by really fast. And there's a lot of like, like heartedness and camaraderie in that team. And I definitely never feel lonely when I'm on service. Right. Um, so I think that there's so much to love about uh, neuro ICU. And I think that's probably about a minute. So I could do more, but we'll stop there. Well, you sold us. You sold us on your elevator pitch, Dr. Alvin. And thank you so much for all that information. And, and before we conclude, we want to ask you about your no-brainers. And these are going to be five rapid-fire questions that you can respond to with one word or one sentence maximum. Oh, this seems challenging. All right, I'm ready. All right. What was your favorite part of this conversation? Um, reflecting on like how the journey that brought me here was like very windy, actually. And I don't know, I, I think of uh, Marty Samuels, you know, who was an amazing uh, clinician educator. And this is not one one word. So I'm sorry. But um, he always talked about the drunkard stagger. 
um, to your, like your clinical, you know, wherever you ended up. And, you know, as an emeritus professor, it, it looks like you've just had this straight line trajectory to get where you're going. Um, but actually you kind of lurched back and forth, like a drunkard staggering kind of between things. And like, eventually you were just moving forward. And so it's kind of cool to reflect like, oh, there was a bunch of things that now seem like, oh, that was so logical. I was going to go there. But at the time there was a lot of uncertainty. What are you looking forward to in the next month? Well, I'm actually on maternity leave, so I'm mostly just hanging out with my newborn. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, my kids are also home from school this week uh, because it's the last week of summer. So it's a lot of family time. So that's good. Wonderful. What's the best pizza topping? Ooh, my mushrooms. Okay. If you wrote a memoir, what would the title be? Can I say the drunkard stagger? <laughs> I like it. I love it. Um, and the last question, go. what are you most proud of? Oh, definitely my kids. But I feel like within um, like academics, maybe, um, gosh, I don't know. I think just recently we saw our uh, like a fellowship class graduate. And I think that's one of the things that's really rewarding every year. So maybe this is not like my proudest accomplishment because that would be my children. But I feel like in some ways watching the fellows go through like their two years and then graduating and being like, wow, like you've grown so much over the last two years of your training. And now we're going to like send you off into the world to be, you know, clinicians. Like that's also, um, that's, that's a really proud moment. In this episode, we discuss the subspecialty of neurocritical care, the beauty and nuances of neurological emergencies, and how to prioritize health and wellness even as a busy intensivist. Thank you once again to our spectacular guest, Dr. Casey Albin, for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of the Neurophilia Podcast, please leave us a review, share it with a friend, and follow us at Neurophilia Pod for updates on future episodes. See you next time.